0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 10, Numbers chapters 8 and 9. Of all of the many misunderstood or misconceived principles that we find in the Bible, especially by Christians and modern Judaism, yet one that is so indispensable for God's followers, at the top must be this idea of atonement that is expressed in the Hebrew root word of kippur. Kippur. Now, we concluded last week's lesson by discussing this term, and but one or two of its several offshoots, such as kofer and kapara. Now, I would like to resurrect that thought briefly because it's as we have learned, what was in the minds of the writers of the Bible and the culture they lived in, uh, an ancient Hebrew culture, is one that is so distant from modern thought that it can be very challenging to apprehend it, let alone to comprehend it. Right? But it is also important if we're going to get the true understanding the Lord wants us to have regarding his laws and his plans.. <coughs> Now, the notion of ransoming a person from the wrath of God, including the God of Israel, for a price, this was prevalent in ancient culture, and it is equally as prevalent in the Bible, and don't ever think otherwise. Okay. The church especially, but Judaism also, have tried all sorts of allegorical tricks and somersaults to reconcile our 21st century minds to the words of scripture on this subject and thus have effectively (laughs) blunted the impact it really ought to have had upon us. We typically find the literal concept as just too primitive for our modern sensibilities. So we kind of twist it and remold it for us until it's comfortable. And and I promise you that if we were to enter a time machine and go back to King David's era and then tell him and the others in his community what redemption means and our modern understanding of it, it would be unrecognizable to them. Proverbs is but one of many books where we get this thought about the fundamental God principle of ransom and its irreplaceable purpose. Listen to Proverbs 21.18. The wicked serve as a ransom for the righteous and likewise the perfidious for the upright. Now, this is an excellent biblical statement to help make my point. This passage literally says that the termination of the lives of wicked people, meaning those who deny the God of Israel, is an acceptable payment to Jehovah to appease him in order that the righteous people, meaning those who are devoted to the God of Israel, receive forgiveness for their sins. It is an exchange that God has decided will satisfy him. Now, please note, we're not speaking here of the righteous killing the wicked and then offering them to God, but rather of God taking out his wrath upon the wicked in whatever manner he determines. Now, let me say that another way. This isn't an act of men upon men... But rather of God upon men. Now, despite standard teachings to the contrary, there is no principle of God that has ceased to exist or has changed. There isn't one. Thus the central place of ransom as a way to justify, to satisfy rather the justice that God inherently requires can't be overlooked or made to be some kind of obsolete divine protocol. That was only for the more primitive times. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for yourselves. For it is that blood that makes atonement because of the life. It is God's very nature that he cannot accept that what he has created can be killed without the killer being subjected to his righteous wrath. Please hear me. Just as we like to say that God cannot tell a lie, neither can he not be angered by the death of one of his creatures. And when I say can't, I mean can't. Just as God is not capable of lying, so he is incapable of not being angered at the spilling of blood. It's not a matter of a limitation of God, or even a choice of God that I'm referring to. Rather, it's his essence and his character that makes God who he is, that he's like this. Thus, the God principle that one of his creatures must pay for the death of another of his creatures, exists. Always. This is reflected in a whole number of ways. For instance, when it comes to sinning, trespassing against the Lord, the guilty party's transgression must be paid for by an innocent party, if it's to be forgiven. Otherwise, the guilty party's blood is on his own head, and God's Anger is satisfied only when that guilty party's life is taken, but forgiveness is not granted. Thus, in the sacrificial system, an innocent animal is slaughtered as a ransom that's paid so that the guilty person's own life is spared by God. Now, why is this necessary in every case without exception? Because God is so holy and so perfect that he can't let even one instance slide. Otherwise, his righteous anger will not be appeased, but his holiness will be defiled. And such a thing is simply not possible. Now, when it came to killing and butchering an animal for food, killing one of God's creatures, the animal's blood had to be given back to God as payment of ransom for the death of that animal at the hands of a human. It was an act of appeasement for the anger of the Lord for the killing of one of his creatures, whether it be a lawful or an unlawful killing. Thus, when an animal was slaughtered, they could not drink the blood. It had to be spilled upon the ground, or if it was done in a sacrificial way, it had to be splashed up against the altar. See, thus it is imperative that we see that the word atonement that is woven throughout the Bible and is so commonly within Judeo-Christianity encompasses a huge range of meaning. Not different meanings for different situations, but rather atonement has this cosmically complex meaning because it has so many facets integrated into it. Atonement in its simplest form means a payment. It's a ransom. It's a substitute. It's a just requirement of a holy God when none other will do. Who who, who does this payment go to? It goes to God. Why does it go to him? Because his righteous anger must be appeased and he is determined that this will satisfy him. There is simply not another choice. There's not plan A and plan B. Who benefits from all this? We do. As worshipers. Now let's see the same God principle of Kippur in action in yet another setting. Redemption. Okay? Open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 8. That's going to be page 157. Numbers chapter 8. We're going to just begin by looking at two verses. Verses uh, 15 through 18. It says, After that, the Levites will enter and do the service of the tent of meeting. You will cleanse them and offer them as a wave offering because they are entirely given to me from among the people of Israel. I have taken them for myself in place of all those who came first out of the womb, that is, the firstborn males of the people of Israel. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both humans and animals. On the day I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I set them apart for myself. But I have taken the Levites in place of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And I have given the Levites to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service of the people of Israel in the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel so that no plague will fall on the people of Israel in consequence of their coming too close to the sanctuary. This is a great opportunity To look back and review for a few minutes. Jehovah reminds us that redemption is a very costly thing. It can only occur with a price, a ransom being paid. And what he determined to re, uh, rather, when he determined to, to redeem Israel out of the hand of Egypt, the price of that redemption was all firstborns. They were to become his holy property. All firstborns of Egypt. Not just all firstborns of Israel, but all firstborns of Egypt as well. These firstborns were designated to be a sacrifice for all other people. So when it came time for Israel to leave Egypt, God would call in his marker. All firstborns of people and cattle, of Egypt and Israel, would be literally sacrificed, slaughtered, killed, to pay the price for Israel being redeemed from slavery. However, even though all firstborns now belong to God and were marked to be a sacrifice of atonement, he would not take the life of those firstborns who trusted him enough to follow his provision, that every home was to slaughter a lamb and paint the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their homes. In other words, that lamb was to be the payment for all the firstborns who were rightfully to be slaughtered as a sacrifice. Of course, we know this event as what? Passover. The very first Passover. So the result was... That the vast majority of Israel, apparently, believed God. And so the Israelite firstborns were spared. But the vast majority of the Egyptians did not believe God. And so the vast majority of Egyptian firstborns were slaughtered as a ransom. As said, Proverbs 21, The wicked were the ransom for the righteous. And this is an inalterable requirement of God. Now that Israel had escaped Egypt, the firstborns of Israel still weren't out of the woods. They were still God's holy property. They owed God a lifetime of service to him. Therefore, Yehoveh in his mercy now decided that the Levites would become the substitute, they would become a ransom for all those Israelite firstborns. Rather than all the Israelite firstborns being God's holy property, subject to lifelong service to God, now the Levites would be God's holy property in their place. And the firstborns would be relieved of their responsibility to him. That's why the census we read about earlier in Numbers was so carefully conducted. Recall that the number of Levite males available to substitute on a one-for-one basis for each of the Israelite firstborn fell short of the amount needed. Therefore, those Israelite firstborns who had no Levite to redeem them instead had to pay money to the priesthood for their redemption. Redemption always, always has a tangible cost. But since God requires a blood sacrifice, which the firstborns of Egypt paid for Israel's redemption, this requirement still lay upon the firstborns of Israel who now passed that burden off of their shoulders according to God's instruction onto the Levites who then passed the blood sacrifice part of that requirement onto the bulls who were sacrificed do you see the chain develop here? Okay. so we see this long chain of substitution being established by the Lord. Kind of a kick-the-can-on-down-the-road process. Eventually, it all fell on Yeshua's shoulders. He was the final and best substitute for the atonement. He could either, by the way, have accepted being that blood atonement sacrifice as he did, Or he could have laid it on an animal. Like men had always done. But that cycle would have just continued. It is the Torah that carefully establishes God's requirements for redemption. By means of a blood sacrifice. And it also establishes that his justice can be satisfied with an authorized substitute as a ransom To pay for what each of us rightly owe to him. Well the final few verses of chapter 8 only reiterate that those Levites, those substitutes who do heavy work are to retire from that heavy work at age 50. Pretty good retirement plan. Now that doesn't mean that they're excused from service though. They became temple guards and watchmen and did all sorts of other labor that would not overly tax an older person. Now next, we're going to examine the second Passover. The first one having occurred the night before Israel left Egypt. So let's move on to Numbers chapter 9 to take a look at that. Now, before we read it all, Numbers chapter 9 and 10 joined together to record all the final preparations for the journey of Israel, now released and redeemed from Egypt, outfitted with God's sanctuary, and prepared with God's laws and commands as they get ready to set out for that promised land. And it's been now 600 years since Jehovah made his covenant with Abraham that a place has been set aside for the set-apart people to live. And that place is what at that time was called the land of Canaan. But in the near future, it would be renamed Israel. So let's read Numbers chapter 9 together. That is uh, 158 in the complete Jewish Bible. Adonai spoke to Moses in the Sinai desert in the first month of the second year after they had left the land of Egypt. And he said... Let the people of Israel observe Pesach, Passover, at its designated time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at dusk, you are to observe it at its designated time. You are to observe it according to all of its regulations and rules. So Moses told the people of Israel to observe Pesach. So they observed Pesach at dusk on the fourteenth day of the month in the Sinai desert. The people of Israel acted in accordance with all that Adonai had ordered Moshe. But there were certain people who had become unclean because of someone's corpse, so that they couldn't observe Pesach on that day. So they came before Moses and Aaron that day and said to them, we're unclean because of someone's corpse, but why must we be kept from bringing the offering for Adonai at the time designated for the people of Israel? And Moses answered them, wait so that I can hear what Adonai will order concerning you. And Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel if any of you now or in future generations is unclean because of a corpse or if he's on a trip abroad. Nevertheless, he is to observe Pesach, Passover. But he will ob- uh, observe it in the second month on the 14th day at dusk. There to eat it with matzah and maror. They are to leave none of it until morning. They are not to break any of its bones. They are to observe it according to all the regulations of Passover. But the person who is clean and not on a trip, who fails to observe Passover, will be cut off from his people. Because he did not bring the offering for Adonai at its designated time, that person will bear the consequences of his sin. Now, if a foreigner staying with you is staying with you and he wants to observe Passover, he's to do it according to the regulations and rules of Passover. You're to have the same law for the foreigner as for the citizen of the land. Now, on the day the tabernacle was put up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, that is the tent of testimony, and in the evening over the tabernacle was what appeared to be fire, which remained there until morning. So the cloud always covered it, and it looked like a fire at night. And whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tent, the people of Israel continued their travels, and they camped wherever the cloud stopped. At the order of Adonai, the people of Israel traveled. At the order of Adonai, they camped. And as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they stayed in camp. Even when the cloud remained on the tabernacle for a long time, The people of Israel did what Adonai had charged them to do and did not travel. Sometimes the cloud was of just a few days over the tabernacle. According to God's order, they remained in camp and according to uh, to Adonai's order, they traveled. Sometimes the cloud was there only from evening till morning so that when the cloud was taken up in the morning, they traveled. Or even if it continued up both day and night when the cloud was up, they traveled. Whether it was two days, a month, a year that the cloud remained over the tabernacle, staying upon it, the people of Israel remained in camp and didn't travel. And at Adonai's order, they traveled, they did what Adonai had charged them to do through Moses. The first thing spoken of in chapter 9 is the Passover, Pesach in Hebrew. Now this is the second Passover celebrated by Israel, and there's a very distinct difference in the way this Passover will be observed as compared to the first one. Now let's remember that the first Passover took place where? In Egypt. Okay. It was that great and terrible night that the Lord killed all those unprotected firstborns. And the only firstborns exempted were those who followed Moses' instructions that they were to kill a yearling male lamb, eat it, and then spread its blood on the doorposts of their mud brick homes. Now, it is a key God principle to understand that while this instruction was primarily aimed at Israel, any family living in Egypt, no matter their nationality, who worshipped Jehovah and obeyed and followed this command was passed over by death. Any family whom a circumcised male led as a sign of joining Israel, no matter their nationality, they could participate. Apparently thousands did. And As a result, we see in Exodus that a mixed multitude, it's called, left Egypt and traveled along with Israel. Now some who came officially joined Israel. And others came as kind of like hitchhikers. And they never joined Israel, though they probably lost their firstborn and were awed at God's power. And so they wanted to live among Israel and enjoy the benefits of such a God. So three categories of people, we could say, left Egypt. First, the natural-born Israelites, Hebrews. Second, those of other nationalities who wished to officially become Israelites, and third, those who had no intention of becoming Israelites, but simply wanted to live among Israel for various reasons, while retaining whatever national identity they were. Now, the Bible usually refers to those who were not natural-born Israelites, but wished to become Israelites as sojourners. And this is a part and distinct from those hitchhikers who are referred to as strangers or resident aliens. Now, the second Passover that we see mentioned here in Numbers 9 is, if you would, the first commemoration of the Egyptian Passover. Okay? And all Passovers from this one forward would, of course, be commemorations of that first Passover back in Egypt. In other words... The first Passover was the event. Every Passover after that was a remembrance of that event. Now the main difference between the first Passover has occurred in Egypt and the second one out in the wilderness is that between the two, in between those two events, the Torah, the law was given to Israel on Mount Sinai early on in the Exodus. Further, a place for God to dwell in Among Israel, that tabernacle, that wilderness tent, had been constructed. And as a result, the character and nature of that Passover lamb also changed somewhat. Now, in the first Passover, each individual family slaughtered their own lamb in their own home, as there was no common place to do such a thing, or a priesthood to officiate over it. Further, while that uh, first Passover lamb was sacrificed, it was killed for a divine purpose, it was not a formal sacrifice, as in the new mold that would be ordained in Leviticus. With the giving of the law now, all sacrifices had to be supervised by the priests of Israel. I have no doubt that it was those firstborns of Israel who were going to be passed over for death by means of the blood painted on the doorposts of their homes, who did the slaughtering of the lamb in that first Passover. It would have been them. Okay? But they would be barred from it from this time forward. And as we discussed rather recently, that until the Levitical priesthood was established at Mount Sinai, which happened about a year after that first Passover, it had been traditional that the firstborns acted sort of like priests within each of the Israelite families. So since the slaughtering of the lamb was now a divinely ordained thing, it would have fallen to that firstborn to kill the lamb at the first Passover in Egypt. Now there's a lot of symbolism here. Okay, It was the lives of the firstborns who had been threatened by God. So it was the firstborns who killed the lamb and did the smearing of the blood. Sometimes we get this wrong impression about that first Passover. It was not to save the physical lives of all the Israelites from death. Women in non-firstborns weren't even subject to God's death threat. His wrath was only going to be poured out on who? The firstborns. Because it was the firstborns, follow this, that he declared as belonging to him. And he was going to sacrifice that which belonged to him for them. In order to save his people. Okay. the killing of those firstborns was the redemption price for israel thereby satisfying his justice Does that kind of ring a bell now see that connection so it was it was each person who was subject to condemnation in egypt that meant the firstborns that had to slaughter the lamb and appropriate those saving qualities of that lamb's blood for himself. You see that? The firstborn who slaughtered the lamb was appropriating it for himself. Now, in the end, it did, of course, lead to his family escaping the slavery of Egypt, but this was not about saving the physical lives of the other family members because their lives weren't even in danger. It is still exactly like that for mankind today. Each person subject to condemnation, which every human is, must appropriate the blood of the sacrifice for himself or herself. Nobody else can do it for you. As much as I might prefer it, I can't appropriate Yeshua's blood for my brother. I can't do it for my mother or her father. I can't do it for my children or my grandchildren. Each person must be redeemed one by one by his, own, his or her own free will and free choice. Mm-hmm. Yet a person within a household who does appropriate Yeshua's sacrificial blood indeed does open a door for his family to escape by showing them the way. Still, each family member must now go and obtain that saving power of Yeshua for him or herself. Now, in this second Passover, the Passover lamb is to be selected and taken to the tabernacle, later on the temple, where the priests are to officiate over the slaughter. Part of the lamb, every lamb slaughtered, is to be offered on the official altar of burnt offering to God. Then some of that blood is taken back home and smeared on the entryway to their home. In the first Passover, it didn't happen that way, because there was no formal Torah. There was no law. There was no priesthood. There was no tabernacle. Now, as was ordained in Leviticus, the Passover is to occur on the 14th day. This rule is repeated here in Numbers, verse 3, along with the regulation that the sacrifice of the Lamb at the tabernacle should occur in Hebrew at Bain Ha'ar bayim. All right. This means literally between the two evenings. So exactly when is that? Well, most ancient rabbis determined it was between sunset and complete darkness. Later, it was determined that it would mean from about what we would call three in the afternoon until the time of total darkness. That was between the evenings. Now, remember, the Hebrew day begins and ends in the evening, not in the morning, like it does among Gentile nations today. More specifically, it is not at dark that the day ends, but when that final edge of the sun disappears over the horizon, or even more specifically, it's when three stars in the sky can be seen that the current day ends and the new one begins. Now, obviously, it was humanly impossible for the priests to officiate over the slaughtering of thousands of lambs in but a few minutes between the sun setting and complete darkness. So one can understand the reason for declaring that the slaughter of the lamb should commence at three in the afternoon. But can you imagine even then how fast they would have had to have worked to make that all happen? Now what's interesting is that there is no mention of the Feast of Matzah here. That is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That feast was to begin the day after Passover. And from the timing of these passages we can know that the Passover occurred on the fourteenth, of a month now called Nisan, right? and Israel left on their journey from Mount Sinai into the wilderness on the twentieth day of the month. Right? There's no way they'd live and leave in the middle of the feast of Matzah. Now, the reason I point this out is that just as God ordained in Leviticus Passover and Matzah, although connected, are two completely distinct observances. It was only in later times that they were so intimately connected that they actually became to be looked at as but one feast. Even today, it is common to call the period of time that includes the first First, uh, includes first of all the Passover, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just Passover. It is called the whole shoot and match, Passover. Some prefer to call the combined two day, or two feast event, that whole shoot and match, matzah, unleavened bread. Either way works. Okay? Many Jews today treat Passover as only the first day of matzah. You'll actually hear them say that. Right. Although that's not correct by the Commands of Torah, obviously. Now, there's a very important reason that Passover had to be celebrated before they packed up and left because it involved the sacrificing of an animal. Matzah did not have a sacrificial element, so to speak. The only requirement, really, for a person was to clean out all the leaven from their dwelling, all the yeast and then to eat unleavened bread for the seven-day period. Therefore, while the tabernacle was essential, starting at Mount Sinai, for the proper observance of Passover, because a lamb had to be sacrificed with a priest in attendance, the tabernacle was not necessary to observe the seven-day Feast of Matzah. In fact, one didn't even have to be ritually pure to celebrate the Feast of Matzah because no sacrifice was ordained. Now, verse six brings forward a circumstance whereby some Israelites come to Moses and they say, Look, we got a problem. And the problem is that some number of Israelites had become defiled because they'd touched a dead body. In Hebrew, Tamele Nefesh. And since the focal point of the second Passover was the sacrifice of a lamb at the tabernacle, and because the law didn't allow anybody who was severely unclean to even approach the sanctuary of God, then then what are you going to do about those people who were currently unclean? Were they still going to be allowed to participate? Those who brought the question to Moses were sure hoping so, so Moses goes into conference with God about this, and God issues his edict. No, they can't. However, on the 14th day of the following month, assuming they're not still in a state of ritual uncleanness, they can celebrate a belated Passover. And verse 11 says that they shall eat that Passover lamb, just like they're supposed to, along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, but they'll leave none of it till morning, no leftovers. All right? They're not to break a bone of the lamb. And there's another element to this whole procedure that's kind of interesting. It says that in addition to those who are not ritually clean, being afforded this makeup date to celebrate Passover, the 14th of the following month, this also applies to those who are on a long journey. They too can postpone the ordained 14th day of Nisan by a month. But this exception is strictly for those two conditions. Verse 13 says that if somebody doesn't celebrate Passover, when, where, and how it's supposed to be, and doesn't meet those other two special conditions, that person is subject to being cut off from his kin. In other words, that person is subject to being separated from God. Well, further, verse 14 continues to reinforce this principle that's been sent down since Genesis, that among Israel there is one law for everybody, whether Hebrew or foreigner. In other words, those of other nationalities who have now thrown their allegiance in with Israel, those coming up out of Egypt, thereby becoming Israelites, they're in the same boat with those natural Israelites. All the Torah applies to them. And they're under the same requirements, the same blessings, and the same curses, if they're going to throw in their lot with Israel. Naturally, because all who want to be followers of the God of Israel must operate under his covenants. Pretty simple. Further, even the resident aliens who are not Israelites and don't want to be Israelites but do wish to live with Israel, they're at least required to observe the Passover. Now, as it's not very hard to imagine, there eventually came to be quite an argument over exactly what was meant by God when he said that a person was on a long journey. All right, I mean, how long is long? 30 days? What is it? Okay. In essence, the question boiled down to just how far a person was from the tabernacle when Nisan the 14th arrived, and therefore how far from his home. One was required to travel to get to the tabernacle later on the temple for Passover, and of course, various rabbis came up with various answers to this. Of what is written and recorded, two main views got settled on: one that anyone who does not have the physical capacity to reach the temple threshold is exempt. In other words, they got their disability; they have, have a disability. The other is that anybody who lived further than 18 miles from the temple and said they just couldn't make it until next month was exempted. So the issue and its various solutions undoubtedly play a role now in the gospel accounts of Jesus' death at Passover time. All right? We know that the Judeans, that is, those Jews who lived down in Judah, who were close to the temple in Jerusalem, followed one set of rules. But the Jews from the Galilee way up to the north, where Jesus and all of his disciples, all of his, uh, uh, disciples his twelve disciples were from, right, they followed a whole other tradition. And this was due to this long distance that the Galileans had to come to go to uh, the temple. The Galileans even held their Passover meal on Passover Eve, the day before Passover, due to to these uh, logistics involved. They would have started clearing their houses of leaven earlier than was required for the Judean brothers to the south. So some of the problems that we find when we read the gospel accounts of the Passover when Jesus was crucified and all about the Lord's Supper and so on can all be traced to this definition of what a long journey amounted to. Because there were exemptions because of it. right. Now let me approach a subject that I know some of you don't entirely agree with me on, but I hope you're coming around. I've already touched on the matter of Yeshua and the Passover, and the more we learn about Torah, the more we see the precise parallels between the slaughter of the Passover lamb and the crucifixion of Christ, and between the Lord's Supper and the Passover Seder meal from which comes our custom of communion. But there is another issue of commonality as well. Mm -hmm. The issue of clean and unclean, and the people who should not participate as a result of being unclean. Here in Numbers 9 is the case of a person who is unclean, so they can't participate in Passover. Mm -hmm. It has to be put off per month, we see a very similar kind of warning developed in the New Testament. Now, first the link between the Passover and Jesus is established. John 6.53, Jesus said, uh, therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Who I like that. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So after the invitation is established to come and the reason for participation is laid down, now we have a warning. And in fact, it's a death threat. And we find it in 1 Corinthians 11.27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly, and it's for this reason that many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you sleep. Now, I've heard any number of guesses and allegorical statements about what drinking and eating in an unworthy manner means. And, of course, these various, sometimes fanciful explanations are usually anything but in the context of Israel, the Torah, and the Jews, which is the only reasonable context from which to view any part of the Bible. Remembering that everything about the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper is a Torah-ordained event. In other words, these weren't man-made. Okay. There is but one clearly stated condition that makes a person unworthy to participate. Being unclean. And of course, the punishment in Torah for partaking of Passover in an unclean state is being cut off karet in Hebrew and karet is biblically defined as divine punishment up to and including death even eternal separation from God now naturally as a parallel to the Torah command, Rabbi Paul warns that those who are unworthy, and I say I say this means generally unclean, spiritually speaking, and who drinks the cup and eats the bread anyway will become sick and weak and fall asleep. Fall asleep is a common biblical euphemism that means to die. And just as obviously, the context makes it clear that this is indeed divine retribution. You don't become ill because something about the wine and bread is toxic. It's not poisonous. Do you see this hard and tight connection between the ordinance of Numbers 9 and the New Testament version of exactly the same thing? The New Testament simply adds to this context by making Yeshua the Passover lamb. Well, let's move on to verse 15. This section of Numbers 9 that explains the operation of the fire cloud the glory of the Lord and what Israel's response to it ought to be. And really, this is but a resumption of something that started much earlier in Exodus. Israel had followed that fire cloud all the way from Egypt now to Mount Sinai. And since they had been stationary for about 13 months there at the base of Mount Sinai, that fire cloud had not been needed to direct their movement but that was all about to change. The sequence of events can be inferred from the circumstances. The fire cloud led them from Egypt to Sinai, then it rose up and rested at the top of the mountain, where Moses went up to receive the Torah, and there it stayed for some time. Now, as the tabernacle was completed, the tabernacle was a pattern of God's heavenly throne, and was the new and latest earthly place where God would dwell among men, now the tabernacle replaced Mount Sinai as God's earthly dwelling place. And remember, Mount Sinai had replaced the Garden of Eden as his earthly dwelling place. So naturally, the fire cloud that we often read about Moses ascending up to the top of Mount Sinai came down and rested from top of Mount Sinai down to rest above that tabernacle. Well, during the day, the sunlight more or less hid the brilliance of the fire cloud so that only the cloud itself could be seen. But when it grew dark, can you imagine how that cloud lit up the night sky? Wouldn't you have loved to witness that? What a sight that would have been, but also how reassuring to God's people, who must have been awfully apprehensive about their futures right about now. Well, beginning in verse 17, we get the drill. When the cloud lifts, the Israelis are to strike camp, take down the tabernacle and move following wherever that fire cloud goes. When the cloud stops, they stop, whether it's overnight, a week, a month, or a year it says. And by the way, that's not saying that the maximum time they stopped in camp was a year. It just means that whether it's long or short, they followed the directions of the fire cloud. Now the final verse says that on a sign from the Lord, they, they either made camp or they broke camp. Now don't be confused. This sign is just the movement or the stopping of the fire cloud. There was not an additional sign. What we must not overlook is that God's presence, as associated with the fire cloud, was real and tangible for those Israelites. But it happened because the people of Israel obeyed God. They built for him this beautiful sanctuary that he ordered. It is also interesting to note that that we had never heard of the fire cloud in the Bible before that first Passover. There's no mention of it. It was not until after God redeemed his people that he appeared to them to lead them in such an intimate and so visible of a manner. And once he had redeemed them and made himself so real and tangible to them, they were expected to respond by being obedient. God leads, they follow. God goes, they go. When he doesn't go, they don't go. When he stops, they stop. I mean, this this is such a beautiful and appropriate pattern and demonstration of how our walk with the Lord is supposed to be. All this fire cloud imagery, all this... Israelis living in tents, temporary dwelling places is poignantly brought forward in the New Testament so that we don't ever have to doubt that God's patterns are ever become abolished or obsolete. We're going to find the transfiguration of Jesus occurring in a cloud. And then later when he arose and ascended, it was into a cloud. And when he comes back, how's it gonna be? In a cloud. Okay. Two of the leading apostles, Paul and Peter, constantly make use of the metaphor of the human body being likened to a tent. A temporary dwelling place, which will be replaced with incorruptible and permanent housing when we've reached our promised land, heaven. All of these examples and patterns and metaphors that we see Jesus and the Apostles use in the New Testament are not new and made up, random or arbitrary. They're used because they directly refer back to the Torah. And the purpose, even if they didn't fully recognize it, was to make that ironclad connection between the newest covenant in Christ, and the earlier covenants revealed in Torah. We'll start uh, chapter 10 next time.